0: Open your Bibles to Luke 15 or you can turn them on as the case may be we do live in that age open your Bibles or turn them on to Luke 15 and this morning we will continue our study of Luke and specifically our study of chapter 15 coming to probably one of the most well-known um, best-loved stories in the Bible um, this is the parable most commonly known as the prodigal son we're only going to look at about half of it this morning. It compromises 21 verses. And so we'll be looking this morning at the father and the prodigal. You'll see the title, the father and the prodigal, is because as much as the prodigal is the one I think we can most relate to, most easily and readily, this is really the story of the father and his love. We've seen, this is part of a progression in chapter 5. If you remember, we looked last week at the The first two parables, all in response to the Pharisees and the scribes complaining. Look back at chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees said this, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that complaint sets in motion these three parables. So, verse 4 So he told them this parable. Verse 8, or what woman? The second parable, the, the, the woman who'd lost the coin. And verse 11, our text, he said to them. So all three of these parables, all of chapter 15's teaching content is in response to the Pharisees grumbling and complaining. But that is in response to what Jesus had just said to them previously. In fact, starting in chapter 14 all the way through 19, you're going to see this sort of ping pong back and forth as Jesus teaches the disciples and then he speaks to the pharisees then he speaks to the disciples and he speaks to the pharisees and so really to understand the context you got to go all the way back to the the parable of the red wedding banquet that jesus told the pharisees remember he went and dined in the house of a pharisee and they're all you know pole positioning themselves to get the best seats and the, the host had invited the most important and prestigious people and jesus fixes their wagons sets them straight And then one of them speaks up in verse 15 of chapter 14. Those reclining at the table with him heard these things. He said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Clearly, whatever correction they took from Jesus about how not to seek honor, how not to invite people, they understood themselves as those who were going to enter the kingdom and eat at God's kingdom banquet And Jesus told them a parable about a man who threw a a dinner party. And he'd invited folks to come. And those who he'd invited and who had agreed to come, when the time came to come, they came up with all manner of excuses. They were more concerned of their things, their possessions, their relationships. I just bought a field. I just bought some oxen. I just took a wife. And so the response then of that that, um, man who was going to throw the feast is he will not invite them. He'll invite the lame, the poor, the blind... Verse 21, Uh, you'll see that. So he said to the servant, report of these things. And the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets, the lanes and the cities and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servants, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. Now that's important because What Jesus tells the Pharisees is this. God has invited you, and you've come up with all these excuses. So God is going to go find the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor. He's going to invite them. What we see at the beginning of 15 is exactly that. Tax collectors and sinners, those who are viewed lowly by the Pharisees, coming to Jesus. And they're coming in the face of Jesus, giving the single strongest, sharpest, hardest call to discipleship yet in Luke's gospel. We've spent three weeks going through 14, 25 through 35, where Jesus tells him three commands, three requirements for discipleship. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not, verse 27, bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He tells them to count the cost. And then verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then he talks to them about the the need to persevere, that what they start they must finish. And he ends it with a call in verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which becomes the link then with 15.1. So Jesus has given this radical, challenging, in-your-face, hard-to-swallow, call to discipleship and he ends it with he who has ears to hear let him hear then 15 1 begins now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear don't miss that they they have responded so as jesus gives this difficult call to follow him who is who is responding in faith who is coming and receiving? because that's critical because the pharisees would have a point if jesus were were eating and fellowshipping with unrepentant sinners. Notice their charge against him is not that he's teaching them. The Old Testament prophets, they understood, taught wicked people. God sent the prophets to wicked people and to call them to repentance. Their charge is not that, but that Jesus welcomes them and that he eats with them. And eating is, is a sign of acceptance. Eating is a sign of fellowship. That's significant that having peace With God, the sign of our ongoing relationship with him is a meal. It indicates in part the fellowship and the peace we have with each other and with him. And so their charge is not Jesus is is welcoming these people only, but he's eating with them. He's he's accepting them. But it's important for us to understand he's accepting those who've heard and responded to his call. And that becomes clear in the first two parables where he compares a shepherd losing a sheep one of his hundred, and he goes and he finds it, and he rejoices, and then in verse seven, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So these are repentant tax collectors and sinners. These are repentant. They've heard Jesus' call. They've, they've yielded to his call. They're coming, renouncing all that they have. They're coming, willing to pick up their cross. They're coming with no greater relationship ties Again, as he tells the parable of the lost coin, the woman searching for it, her great joy. Verse 10, just so there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in the parables, we see two things. We see a sinner repenting is like a coin being found, is like a sheep being found. But to answer the Pharisees, why, why would Jesus dine with, welcome, treat um, in fellowship These these tax collectors and sinners, because he's modeling the joy of God in heaven. We looked at that last week. God's great joy over one, just one sinner who repents. How can there not be on earth likewise a rejoicing, a fellowship, a meal? Well, there's an escalation in the parables, and we saw that too. The first dealt with losing one one-hundredth. You lose one sheep out of a hundred. In the second parable, one coin out of ten, you go from a hundredth to a tenth. Now, verse 11 begins, there was a man who had two sons. You lose one of your two sons. And whereas in the previous two parables, Jesus tells us how this lines up. We're, we're meant to, to understand ourselves how this relates. In other words, so Jesus tells us in verse 7 and in verse 10, just like this, so this. And so we learned we're looking at joy and we're looking at a sinner who repents. There is no such explanation here, but I think it's clear enough as we go through it. So I'd like to read the entirety of the the parable, even though we'll only be looking at the first half, and then dive in and, and try to see what we can learn from this. Verse 11, through the end of the chapter. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. Popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son. But if you see it in context, this is meant to explain the final explanation for why it is Jesus is fellowshipping with, is receiving, is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so, what we're seeing primarily is the father. So, I had to fit it into the title the father and the prodigal. And next week, we'll look at the father and the older brother. We go from one in a hundred to one in ten to one of two sons. And in this, we're going to see, again, primarily two things. We're going to see a sinner repent, we're going to see joy. They're both present, the celebration is present. The sinner repenting is present. Whereas in the first two parables, we saw primarily God's activity. A sinner repenting is like a coin that is searched for and found. A sinner repenting is like a sheep that is searched for and found. The coin isn't doing anything. The sheep isn't doing anything. Another party is searching them out. here. We're actually going to see what the sinner does. We've seen the sovereignty of God emphasized in these things. Here we're going to see the sinner's work, the sinner's change of heart and mind. So we're going to look at this in three points. The, the plot of the story has three points, and then I want to make six observations from this. We're just going to walk through the text in three points, and then six observations, things we can learn from this. First, a lost son. A lost son. Verses 11 through 16. It tells in this story, there's a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided it between them, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed of the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in telling this parable. He's been doing it already in the previous two parables but he does it here in extreme fashion he has been granting the pharisees assumptions what are the pharisees assumptions the pharisees assumptions is they're righteous they don't need to repent they're good through the law of moses through their keeping of it they are right and righteous and so Jesus can talk about 99 who need no repentance in the first parable. It's not that Jesus believes the Pharisees are righteous and don't need repenting. What he's saying is, let's, let's grant your premise, even if you're right about who you think you are. Let me show you how ugly your perspective is. Let me show you how ugly your grumbling at these coming in and being welcomed is. And the same thing here. The older brother has been faithfully serving the father. He's granting their premise. He's also granting their premise that these sinners and tax collectors are as bad as they think they are. In this story, the younger brother is awful. He's terrible. The point of the parable is not to see he's misunderstood or to see well, if you see it from his perspective. No, Jesus will grant that these people who are being welcomed, apart from grace, apart from God's forgiveness, apart from their repentance, are terrible people. the the prodigal is a terrible person he has a terrible thing he brings shame upon his father he's wicked so jesus grants all of that and he says okay but still let me show you as you see the joy and the love of the father how it can be good and fitting and right to welcome such people as they are pent in so we look at a lost son and first we see an insolent and thankless request this is pretty straightforward when generally do inheritances get divvied up after a death right it's pretty straightforward so what is this son saying when he comes to his father who is not dead but alive give me give me my share of the inheritance what he's in essence saying is i'm tired of waiting for you to die and i just have my money (laughs) that is an incredibly incredibly harsh rude um, presumptuous statement it's just insolent it's the height of insolence and the father i think would have been right just to like you know get away from me or kick him out of his house but this father amazingly in the face of such insolence such rudeness i mean basically i want you dead give me your stuff i want the stuff i don't want you i've been wish you would hurry up and die can you give me the stuff well, the father does, exactly that. He divides up the inheritance, and the older brother gets his two shares, and the younger brother gets his third, according to Deuteronomy 21, 17. And then to make it even more clear, lest we're tempted to think, well, maybe the younger son loves the father too. Once he gets the stuff, what does he do? He liquidates it, so he sells. Whatever land he gets, he sells, because whatever he's got, he's got to be able to take with him into a foreign country, right? so he liquidates all the family possessions that are his all the land that's supposed to go down in the inheritance generation after generation after generation he turns it all into a sack of money and then he goes off to a far country to make it explicitly clear i don't want you i just want your stuff It's really clear there is no well i love you too dad but can i have some of your money i want your stuff i don't want you i've been waiting for you to die you just give me this stuff, and then he splits, and he leaves town. Adding on top of that, assuming this is a Jewish-Israeli context, leaving the land is a big deal of rejection God, right? This is the land God gave to the fathers. He leaves it. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Give it to me, and I want, it. I want to live without you, apart from you. And he leaves. He divided his property. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, it's so an insolent and thankless request. You can just imagine how the father's heart would have been broken over this, the rejection, the carelessness, the callousness, the greed. I mean, make no mistake, this is wicked of this younger son. Inexcusable. Absolutely shameful. It gets worse from there. What does he do with it? Well, maybe maybe he'll be shrewd. Maybe he'll invest it. Maybe this thankless ingrate will show some wisdom no he becomes a profligate there when he gets to the far country in a pagan land um, he squandered his property in reckless living we, we get some idea of the reckless living in the second half of the story when the uh, older brother says "This son of yours verse 30 devoured your property with prostitutes so the reckless living involves drink and food and partying and prostitutes He's taken the family, his share, a third of the family inheritance. He's liquidated it, and then he blows it all on prostitutes and partying and reckless living. That's actually the type of thing that would warrant the death penalty in Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy uh, 21, 18 to 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. Then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate in the place where he lives. And he shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So as Jesus is telling the stories to the Pharisees, they are understanding, Jesus explaining, This son has committed death penalty worthy sin. Again, Jesus is, is, is not, the, the solution to how Jesus is fellowshipping with these people does not lie in, they're not really as bad as you think they are. That's not the way Jesus tries to go. He doesn't go that route. He could. He could point out to them that their religious self-righteousness is worse than this sin. No, he's granting it. He's painting the prodigal in as dark and ugly a picture as he can. The way he resolves his fellowship, his inviting, his eating with the sinners is not by saying they're not really as bad as you think. He'll grant that. This, this is a terrible person. He, he should have been put to death under Israel's law. So, so a wicked and wasteful life. And then we notice that it ends in a disgraceful and desperate state. It ends in a disgraceful and desperate state. So even though the, uh, the party rages as long as he has the money, but once the money runs out, his friends run out. Notice no one's going to help him. No, no one's going to show kindness to him. And then a famine arises in the land. And this young man who only recently was you know, on top of the world partying is now reduced to having to hire himself out to feed pigs. And if you remember, pigs are an unclean animal. In in, in Israel. This this man has to make himself unclean every day he works. And no one shows any pity for him, and no one shows any kindness to him, and he's longing to eat the food which the pigs are fed with, which either means that he wasn't allowed to, or he couldn't quite get himself to the point of doing it. We're not, not entirely sure, but that's how low he is brought down. He is doing something absolutely shameful. And you can imagine the Pharisees hearing this would probably think, good riddance, he's gotten what he deserves. Amen. As they hear about this shameful son who so shamed his father and so wasted the family inheritance, and now he's finally getting what he deserves. And you can imagine that. And there is a sense of justice. There's a sense of reaping and sowing. You reap the wind, you You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And, And that's what this man has done. And so he is lost, utterly lost. He was lost when he was at home. He didn't want his father, didn't want a relationship with him, just cared about the stuff. He he sold all the family possessions to get the stuff, and then the stuff slid through his fingers, and he ends up poor, homeless, in a far pagan land, caring for pigs, starving, and no one gave him anything. No grace, no mercy, no help, nothing. That's that's where he's at. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, there's really no more need to tell any more of the story. This is, you know, this is a happy ending. This is one of those Aesop's fables. But there's more. Because we start with a lost son, but in verses 17 through 20, we now see a repentant son. Remember, Jesus' key to explain why it was fitting for him to fellowship with and eat with these people is they're repentant sinners. That was the key phrase in verse 7 and verse 10 in the previous parables. And so here we get a picture of that. And I love love the language used here, verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when his head cleared, and it's speaking even of the sort of the form of insanity that sinfulness can take of looking at things. He comes to his senses and he realizes what he's doing and where he is. He says, "How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger." Begins with a felt need, his own hunger, his own lost state. But so often, when God's grace is at work, what starts with being just concerned with the consequences. So he starts, "I'm hungry." My father's servants aren't hungry, but I'm hungry. Moves then to repentance as he um, comes to his senses first, and then rehearses his confession. I love this. He rehearses what he's going to say. He's thinking through. We get a, a bird's eye view into the inside of his mind. As he rehearses his confession, notice what he says. He recognizes his sin against God and his Father. He says, I will arise and go to my Father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's, he's, willing, to, he's, he's willing to call it sin. He isn't trying to minimize it. I, I made a mistake. I exercised some poor judgment, Father made some bad investments i was a bit rash i've sinned against heaven i've sinned against you i will recognize my wrong against god and call it what it is sin and i'll recognize my wrong against you it was sin he recognizes a sin against god and against his father and he recognizes what he deserves he doesn't make any excuses he freely confesses i am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I threw that relationship away. I didn't value it. I didn't want it. I wanted you dead. I wanted your stuff, and I wanted to be far away from you. And so I, I, I'm not even trying to cross that bridge again. I recognize that I've burnt it, and I, that's only fitting. And he's willing to serve as a hired servant. I put slave in there. It's a hired servant. Um, that, was a, that was a typo. Um, he's willing to serve as a hired servant, as a day laborer. He's willing to start in, in his father's household at the bottom rung. Um, he's looking for grace. He doesn't air, warrant, air, argue on, mer- on merit. Come on, after all, I'm your son, father. Do something for me. Just, he's free grace. I've sinned. I've done wrong. I don't deserve to be your son. Could I please be your day laborer? Please. That's what he's going to do. And here's repentance. He comes to his senses. He realizes the state he's in. And then... Finally, point three, we see a restored son. A restored son. He puts shoe leather to his his thinking. Remember, he said, I will get up and go. And what's he do? Starting in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. And now we see the father and his action in this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran And embraced him and kissed him and then the son begins his rehearsed speech the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to his servants quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Three three points to look at here as we see the father restore his son. His father sees him and runs to him in compassion. That's just a marvelous picture. Now we've seen the focus on we've, we've been looking at part of what we've seen in all three of these parables is a sinner repenting. We're told that explicitly in the first two. And as we get through the mindset of the prodigal, it's clear that's what he's happening. Repentance means, fundamentally, a change of mind, a change of thinking. He comes to himself, his mind and his thinking alters, and he realizes, "What have I done? What am I doing? What condition am I in? What have I given up? What have I lost?" I don't deserve to be his son. Maybe I can be his household servant. But even in a parable that does show us, from the sinner's perspective, what repentance looks like, the father is still active. He's a long way off. What does the father do? He sees him. What does that mean? What does that suggest? It suggests the father regularly is looking for his son. The father is eager He's, he's anxious, he's looking for him, and so he sees him a long way off. I don't think it's accidental. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. And I love the flow. It starts with the father sees is that, wait a second, Is that? and he recognizes the shape of his son, and I'm sure his son looks very different now than he did when he left. Apparently he doesn't have shoes on, he's been tending pigs, he's got dirty clothes on, but I'm sure most parents can recognize their children. This father sees him, he recognizes him, and then what stirs up in his heart? Anger, wrath, there's that terrible son of mine. No, compassion. This is the same response we heard about back in um, chapter 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember? The Samaritan sees the man on the side of the road. That's the exact language, verse 33 of chapter 10. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had or felt compassion. It just welled up within the Father's heart. It's compassion. And then what does he do? He runs. You can imagine the Father sitting there waiting. Okay, we'll see what he has to say. We'll see what he has to say. Wait till he'll hear this out. Maybe, maybe he's repentant. Maybe he's not. And again, what we're not getting from this is rules of what parents must do if their children come back. What we're meant to see is lavish grace, lavish, overflowing love, or to use Exodus 34 language, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he runs. And the son begins to rehearse his speech, word for word, but notice what happens here, the second point. His father interrupts him he interrupts, does the son finish what he rehearsed? No. The whole last sentence of it being a household servant is left out. Not, I don't think, because the son changed his mind and thought, you know what, that's a bit too much. I'm assuming it's because the father interrupts him. He, he, what he rehearsed saying, he says word for word exactly, so it seems unthinkable that we're to read this as the son changing his mind. Rather, the father interrupts him. He, he gets halfway through his speech, and what's the father? He starts shouting for servants to go get things to put on him, get a ring, get a a garment, get shoes, get, get a feast going. He interrupts him with forgiveness. He interrupts him with forgiveness. He's not even done his confession. And here is the father restoring, forgiving. And finally, we see his father celebrates in his great, great joy. His father celebrates in his great, great joy. Bring the fattened calf, verse 23, and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for the son is dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So that's the story. We have a son, acts shamefully. He goes and he reaps the consequences of his folly and his wickedness. He comes to his senses, he repents, he gets up, returns, begins confessing to his father, and his father interrupts the confession with full forgiveness, restoration, and it ends with a great, great party and feast. In the parable of the, of the shepherd and in the parable of the woman with the coin, they just called their friends and neighbors. But slaughtering a fattened calf is a feast that's going to be a large feast. And it's so large that the older brother hears it as he's coming in, and there's music and dancing. This is kind of like the feast Jesus was talking about back in chapter 14. So we come around full circle. I, wanna, I just want to get six things out of this, six points that we can learn from this, observations we can make from this. Um, let's, let's begin first. Sin... And all sin, I mean by this, all sin, is rooted in a rejection of God as God and the worship of the creation. Sin is rooted in a rejection of God as God and the worship of the creation. You wonder why God is offended at sin, and we just look at individual sins. Was it really that bad? You've got to understand that all of our sin according to Romans 1, is rooted in a refusal to honor and give thanks to God. Listen to, listen. well, let me turn there to Romans 1. And in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul, we've, we've looked at this many times, he's going to end with a laundry list of sins. But when he shows us what the real problem, the root of the problem is, it starts in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as god or gave thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man birds animals and creeping things in all of our sin and and the, the problem with sin is this saints looking at god i don't want you i don't want to enjoy you i don't want to honor you I don't want to live a life in relationship with you. I want your stuff. I'm going to worship the creation. I'm going to worship the stuff. And if I can, I'd like to take that stuff and move as far away from you as possible. That's what's going on in our sin. And that's why God is offended at it. Because in all of our sin, what we're saying is this thing that I want, be it money, sex, pleasure, the respect of other people, I want I don't want you, I want that. And preferably I'd like that apart from you, please. And that attitude is what springs forth all the sins that Paul gives us at the end of Romans 1. The prodigal is a fitting picture of our sin and what our sin is saying to God. You're not enough. You're not satisfying. I don't want to live with you. Just give me the credit card. Give me the car, and I'll be gone. Secondly, sin promises pleasure and freedom, but ultimately it beggars and enslaves sin promises pleasure and freedom but it beggars and enslaves you know we what happens in the garden adam and eve are in charge of this wonderful garden they get to rule all of god's creation as his regents and they're promised if we just eat this tree we'll be wise we'll be more like god what does it cost them get kicked out of the garden the curse comes in and sin always does this. Sin promises us that we can have more freedom. We can have more autonomy. We can be more self-directed. We can and it always makes us poor, impoverishes us. It always enslaves us. That's what it does. And that's what it does to this man. He, he ends up, there's a brief period of time where sin is pleasant, right? The author of Hebrews speaks of that. There's a season where this guy's partying and he's with the prostitutes and he's got his wine cup in his hand. But before long, he's feeding pigs slop hiring himself out hungering for food with no pity sin is a harsh taskmaster and those who give themselves to it suffer the wages of sin is death you know jeremiah 213 is, is another explanation of what happens when we rebel listen to this god my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living water and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In Israel, a cistern was a, a hole you'd dig that you'd then cover with a clay or some finish that would harden to hold water. And, and when rain came, it would collect the rainwater and become a pool of water. Well, a broken cistern that had cracks, what would happen? The, the rain would drain out of it. What we'd be left with is maybe like a little mud puddle at the bottom. And what God is saying is, when we sin, when we abandon God, we leave a limitless supply of living water. They have forsaken the fountain of living water, hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we're over here you know, kneeling on the ground with our lips against a mud puddle, sipping it out, trying to convince ourselves that it tastes good. And third, in repentance we see our true condition. In our repentance, we see our true condition. Now, I know that many of you wrestled with Jesus' demands at the end of chapter 14. And one of the things we thought through is how can demands to forsake everything, renounce everything, pick up your cross, how can that fit alongside of salvation's free? Salvation costs nothing. I think this gives us a picture. Because doesn't the prodigal, in every sense, fulfill jesus demands when he returns to his father he doesn't have a prostitute in his arm and a wine cup in his hand does he when he returns to his father he isn't demanding things he is willing to be a servant i'll serve you you want to send me to the field or go to the field you want to send me over there i'll go over there I, I, he's he's coming willing to serve He's coming empty-handed. He's coming, confessing, and recognizing his sinfulness. And yet, if you look at this picture of the prodigal, who wants to suggest that this is costing him anything? I mean, I guess, yes, you could argue it cost him his pig slop. It cost him his sorrow. And and I think the the key here is that shifting of clearing of yourselves. The, The whole problem is while sin has got its claws in us, we look at these things and we think it's wealth and we think it's valuable, let me come to ourselves and realize all the things keeping us from Christ are pig slop. Or, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, turn, turn to Philippians chapter uh, 3, briefly. Philippians chapter 3. Very, very familiar passage. The Apostle Paul says it this way, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You See, when, when, when God's grace is operating and we are repenting, we see and we recognize that all these things that we viewed as valuable, it's nothing. It's, it's fool's gold. It, it costs us nothing. We give up nothing in coming to Christ and we gain everything. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he can never lose. In repentance, we see our true condition or to use the language of luke we are able in repentance to say the beatitudes that jesus gives upon his disciples blessed are those who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god blessed are you who are hungry now if you should be satisfied blessed are you who weep now if you shall laugh blessed are you when people hate you exclude you the the problem of hearing jesus call to salvation discipleship is when you think you're rich When you feel full and satisfied, when this world is satisfying you and you feel like you have this world's things and this world pleases you and you laugh now, that's when it becomes difficult to be a follower of Christ. But in repentance, you realize, I'm poor, I'm blind, I'm naked, I'm lame. Then you realize there's no cost at all. Okay, three points about the Father. Three points about the Father. Three points, so we're trying to look, if you're trying to follow these six points, In the previous parables, we learned something about a sinner repenting. We learned something about joy. Okay, so we've learned something about sin and repentance. Now let's learn something about the Father and his joy. One, the Father is seeking his children. This may seem obvious, but it's important. The Father is seeking his children. The Father is looking in this story for his son. He's keeping an eye open for him. And Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that he has come into the world to save sinners The father sent him. Why did the father send Jesus into the world? Not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. The father is actively looking for his children. This is a wonderful truth. The father is seeking his children. And even here we see God's activity and God's work in repentance. The son doesn't come all the way to the father. The father The father just sees him beginning to work, beginning to act, and he runs to him and he meets him where he is. He doesn't wait for him. I'll just wait right here until he gets all the way up here. I mean, I love that picture. The son just begins to return, just begins to move towards him, and here the father covers the ground running because the father is seeking his children. Second, the father is eager to forgive. The father is eager to forgive. Now, this story, and this is what's meant to marvel us, this father has been shamed he has been taken for granted. Worse than that, the son has essentially said, I, I wish you'd hurry up and die. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Then he wastes the inheritance. You'd probably imagine this father was hoping that this wealth that he built up would go on to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. No, he liquidates it all. He spends it all. It's all gone. And yet we read something amazing. The father isn't sitting there waiting. Well, we'll see. We'll see what he has to say for himself. Who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be good. He runs. And I just want to read a quote from uh, John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. Um, this is a, I love this quote. It's an extended quote, so try to bear with me. But the title of the section is this, Dignified Men Don't Run. Dignified Men Don't Run from the Pleasures of God. Quote, Jesus used another comparison to help us feel the force of what it means to have the Father rejoice over us with all his heart. In Luke 15, he says two times that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he illustrates what happens in heaven by telling a story about a father who had a wayward son who left home and squandered all his inheritance. The son comes to his senses while feeding pigs in a far country and decides to go home and seek mercy from his father. He heads home and as he goes, prepares a speech, something to the effect Father, I'm not worthy to be your son, so would you let me live in the servants' quarters and work and eat with them? As Jesus tells this story, you can feel the energy of love building as he shows how the father rejoices with all his heart over the boy's arrival. While the boy is still a long way off, the father sees him. And his heart warms with compassion. He doesn't hold back and watch and wait to see what the boy looks like. He bursts out the front door and starts running down the road. Don't miss the force of this scene. Well-to-do, dignified aristocrats. Aging men don't run. They walk. They keep their composure. They show that they're on top of their emotions. But in Jesus' story about God's joy of his people, not so, the father runs Can you see them both running? Or maybe the boy was too stunned to run. Maybe he couldn't believe his eyes. Maybe the smell of pigs was still on him. Maybe the thought flashed through his mind to turn and escape this utterly unexpected demonstration of affection. But he does not turn. Jesus said the Father embraced him and kissed him. Pig, smell, and all. Can you see that embrace without feeling emotion? I can't. But I think the emotion goes deeper than that. I know that the Son, that I am the Son in Jesus' story, and I cannot comprehend that the Father in heaven, the great and glorious creator of all the universe, the sovereign over all things, throws to the wind all dignified self-consciousness and runs to me and embraces me and kisses me as though, no, it is no fiction, rather because he is happy with me. He is glad with all his heart that I am part of his family. This is why I cannot see that embrace without pausing to let my eyes and my throat recover. This is exuberant, ridiculous, lavish love and grace shown. This father runs. He doesn't even know yet that the son is repented. He just sees him coming. And as the son begins to speak and he learns, yes, my son is repentant, he's confessing sin, he he interrupts him with forgiveness. I love that. I I know that Jesus' demands at the end of chapter 14 are difficult, and and I've argued that they're not negotiable. The gospel doesn't alter for different people, where for some of you you've got to deny yourselves and some of you it's okay. No, I've argued that, no, consistently, this is the standard Jesus puts up. But I want you to also see that when... We even weakly and feebly try to respond. God doesn't wait and say, see, well, we'll, see. we'll see how much. He he. he inter- forgiven! Get him a ring, get him a cloak, get him new shoes, throw a party. The son just begins to return. He doesn't come all the way home. The father meets him. The son gets halfway through his prepared speech, and the father forgives him. John Piper elsewhere says, God's wrath has a safety, his mercy and forgiveness has a hair trigger. I love that. I think that's, I think that's what it means. That God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Father is eager to forgive. The Father is eager to forgive. And finally, the Father's joy is a testament to his great love. The Father's joy is a testament to his great love. And here's what I mean. You've heard me say last week and even this week that... For the shepherd, his sheep is valuable. For the woman, the coin is valuable. And, and you've also heard me say in previous weeks that we have no inherent value because of our brokenness and our corruption and our sinfulness. We, we deserve wrath. So how do, you, how do you fit these together? The father values and delights in his son. Well, here's, here's the point is what I'm trying to get at. I think what we're supposed to marvel at is that the father values the son. Yes, the father values the son, but we've seen it's not because the son merits that love and value. You'd get the wrong impression if you think, oh, he looks like a really bad boy, but in reality, he's really precious. No, it's a testament to the father's love that he so loves his son this way. We could understand. The Pharisees certainly would understand if the father had responded less exuberantly. Maybe he would have said something like, well... We'll give it a trial run and if you show up for work and if you chip in and you uh you work as good well as the other servants i suppose there can be a place for you we could that that could be ex- understandable i wouldn't rebuke somebody if that was their response I, that might that, that that might be something you might consider the, the father here his love and his restoration the ring the cloak the feast the dancing the singing is meant to show his great heart, his loving heart. Or as Deuteronomy 7 puts it, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So why, does, why does God love you? Why does he love me? Is it because we're great, we're wonderful? No, it's because he loves us. Don't, don't miss this. This is not the story of the really, you think he's not, but he's really a valuable son. This is about the father who so loves his son that even when his son is this despicable and this wicked, he embraces him and he loves him and he is precious in the father's sight. And we're supposed to wonder, how, how could the father love the boy this way? And we're supposed to marvel at his love. Otherwise, we'll end up with something like, you know, the prodigal showing up and saying something like, you know, Dad, I know you really miss me and I ran out of money so I was thinking maybe, you know, we could make this work out for both of us. I could be around here. That would make you happy. You could give me another line of credit. That would be, you know, we could both make out from this. If you think this is about how valuable we are, we, we run into that danger. You know, I know that heaven wouldn't be the same without me, God. So I'll consider going to heaven if you just help me out with my marriage, help me out with my lo- Now, we are valuable to God in spite of who we are in spite of what we've done, not because of who we are. This isn't a story, the testament of the value of the Son, even though the Father values Him. And God values His children, even though we don't deserve it. That's the point. Now I'm going to call the worship team up for our final song. And I just want us to marvel at God's love. Jesus is saying, any of you who are Christians, any of you who have come to faith in Christ... This is God's response to your salvation. This is the love he has for you. This is the the way he responded when you began to turn to him. And we can sing of the glory of such a great God.